0: if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it Hope Arrived. Last week we looked at Luke 1, Hope Announced. But this week we move on to Hope Arrived, the coming, the glorious coming of our hopes. So Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 1 through to the end of verse 20. It reads as follows. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude over the heavenly host, praising God And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to this scripture today. A scripture that is so familiar, so natural and normal to us and blow us away with the truths contained within it. Lord, would it be as if we are there? Would you give us eyes to see the shepherds? Would you give us eyes to see Mary and Joseph and the looks on their faces? Would you see it, give us eyes to see the angel and the multitude of heavenly hosts declaring of your worth and splendor and of your arrival? Lord, help us not just to go into nativity mode, but help us to be dazzled by the glory of God. By your grace, Lord. Amen. You know, before I was a pastor, one of the jobs I did was working for a company called Admiral Car Insurance. And all I did all day was sell car insurance. And then after a while, I got reasonably good at selling car insurance. So I helped train other people how to sell car insurance. And it was really over that season, over that five years of my life, that I started to really understand and hear about so many different styles of, te- of selling. Because there's not just one style of selling something. There's obviously lots of different styles of selling every, any given thing. So there's the principle of the hard sell. You get people on the phone, and you're just going to go on and on about things, and you're just going to bang them and say, well, you're crazy if you don't buy this. You need this. These are all things that you're going to need. And, and even when somebody's saying no, 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 people are still trying to push through the door. Do you, do you get those types of here, salesmen here? here? Because you get them back in the UK, they knock on your door, and their foot is in the door, and you're like, well, you might move your foot, please. You know, and they just want to talk to you until you buy the product. Then there's the soft sell, a situation where somebody becomes your best friend for five minutes and it's as if like you were meant to be inviting them to the family wedding because they've become so close to you, but at the same time they're trying to slip different products into your life as if now you're brothers and sisters. And then there's just selling where you're just going to talk to people gently, gently and assumptively sell things. So they become your friend over the phone if you're selling through the phone. Or they become your friend over the door. And by the end you say, well, Mrs. Jones, we seem to be getting on great and this is such a good price. If you've got your credit card there, I'll just set it up for you now. And they go, oh, all right, I'll just get it for you. And you've assumptively sold something. That's how you've actually done it, by just linking it into the conversation. The most crazy one, though, one of my little favorites, is reducing to the ridiculous. The style of selling that reduces things that are huge to the absolute ridiculous. And this was invented and talked about by an American salesman. Most good salesmen tend to be Americans. They are very good at it, in my opinion. And this American, some 20 years ago, got involved in a pots and pans business that was completely failing. I mean, who wants to buy pots and pans? Not many of us. But who wants to buy pots and pans for $500 20 years ago? Not too many people, because that's an awful lot of money for what is effectively a pot and a pan that you're going to stir things and then, you know, who cares? You've got got macas anyway, right? But he wanted to sell these things for 500 bucks 20 years ago and this failing company hired this salesman and he invented a whole style which was called reducing to the ridiculous. See, what he would do is he would invite people over to his home And he would cook them a meal. He'd have a group of 10 or so folks, and he would sit down with them, and he would cook a meal with the pots and pans, and he'd be showing all the ladies around the pans. Aren't they lovely? Look at these pans, just lovely black. Hold the handle, go on, go crazy. And they're holding, oh, they're very nice handles, very, very nice handles. And he's talking through all these different pots and pans, and then eventually the guys would say, well, how much are they? You say, well, there's a story behind that. They're they're $500, but don't, 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 don't go crazy with me. Listen to what I've got to say here. These pots and pans come with a lifetime guarantee. They are going to last forever. But say, for instance, they only actually last 10 years. Well, that's only $50 a year. Now, say, for example, then your wife uses these pots and pans five days a week. That's 250 times a year. You know, when you stop and start to consider that, 250 times a year, and it's only 50 bucks, that's only 20 cents every time you use these pots and pans. Now, let me ask you, sir, when you go to a restaurant and you have a meal, How much do you tip them? Dollar? Two dollars? Three dollars? Sir, is your wife worth more to you than 20 cents? (laughs) He's taken something so huge, it's no longer a $500 bill now, it's 20 cents, and we've managed to link his wife's worth to 20 cents, and of course then she's given him the evil eye and he's looking for his checkbook, because he's reduced it to the ridiculous. Now... What has that got to do with Luke chapter 2? It's got this to do with it. I think so often we can reduce Luke chapter 2 to the ridiculous. Where it becomes no big deal. Where it just becomes something that we read over and yeah, yeah, and it just doesn't affect us. Because it's so reduced to the ridiculous. Many of you, if I came over to your homes, will probably have some type of star on the top of the tree, we do, it's a decrepit little thing, it's making the tree lean, but some of you will have angels on the top, and they're embarrassing angels, aren't they, if we're honest, it's usually like a toilet roll, that your kid has put fluffy things around, and there's like a face on it that you think, that is just a horrendous face, but that is the angel on our tree, that is the angel, that is the vision that we have of angels as we look at things on trees, we've all been to nativity plays, as we looked at last week, Where you've got Mary and Joseph rocking up with their dad's sheets around them and their dad's belt on their head. There's a baby Jesus who's clearly a doll. And then we've got an angel who's no more than five years old saying, Behold, the angel of the... It's it's not really working. It's just sucking. And then you've got always a few kids that clearly aren't very good at anything. So they're cows. And that used to be me. What what do I get in the play? Oh, you're a cow. Oh, oh, great. What do I do? Will you stand here with a cow face? That's just great. And, and so many of us have this idea, when it comes to Luke chapter 2, of these types of images, these very, very small, very childish nativity scenes. And the result of it is this incredible sight. This inspirational piece of scripture gets reduced to the ridiculous. But as we pause on this today, and as we think about this today, I want to introduce you to Luke 2, because here, what we have just read, I believe, is one of the most awesome and terrifying sights that this world has ever seen. What we have just read about in these 20 verses is one of the most incredible, majestic, sovereign, huge, and vast happenings that have ever, ever happened in the history of mankind, in the history of this world's existence. And so today I want us to look at it Not in the ridiculous, but I want us to look at it as if we've seen it for the first time. And I want us to look at it and shine a light on it in three ways. I want us to look at number one, the action. Number two, the proclamation. And number three, the response. So let's dive straight in where Dr. Luke does with the action. Now it starts in verse one. And the center figure in verse one is Augustus Caesar. Now, Augustus Caesar really is the Barack Obama of the day. This guy is incredibly powerful. He's the most powerful man in the world by a million miles at this time. And really, as far as he was concerned, he owned the world. The Roman Empire was pretty much the world. And so he really called the world to account. And part of the way he did that was he called a census, which meant that every man or woman had to go back to their original place of worth, where their family heritage was, and the whole point was partly to do with taxation, but also potentially to do with different, different war issues as well. They wanted just to get people together to know again where is everybody going to be based. Well, that's the setting of the scene. And what takes place there in Mary and Joseph have to head to Bethlehem from their home in Nazareth. See, Joseph has come through the line of David. And David, King David, was born in Bethlehem. So they have to make this move. And can you imagine the scene? It is a seriously long way from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. It's about 120 k's. How far is Newcastle from here? 200, is it? All right, it's less than that. 120 then. So 120 is Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's on rough terrain. There's no motorway or freeway going up to the thing. It would take them at least three days. But ladies, imagine this. You're 13 years old. You've never been pregnant before. The guy who walks next to you isn't your husband. He's the guy you're engaged to. And at 13, you are eight months pregnant. You are about to pop. And you have just been told that you're going to have to make a 120-kilometer trek. No planes, no trains, no cars. You're walking. And if you're lucky, you're going to get a donkey. Now, I believe there was a donkey because I heard it in a nativity at school. Little donkey, little donkey. It doesn't actually say that, but I'm going to run with it. But what we do know is that they definitely didn't have transport of a mechanical means to get there. So this was a harrowing trip. This would be horrendously difficult to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Imagine being told that, ladies. I've seen some of your faces when you're eight months pregnant and you don't want to come to church, let alone walk 120 kilometers. You think this is huge. And this is, would be huge for them. Very cold in the night, very hot in the day, but you've got to get there. And you're 13. Well, in God's kindness, they did get there. They made the trek and they made the travels, as we realize. And sometime shortly after their arrival, she gave birth to her son. Let's read verse 6. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, the scene, on the face of it, just looks lovely, doesn't it? You think, oh, isn't that, isn't that lovely? She gave birth, and she read, oh, little, nice, soft, white cloth. Oh, a little manger, that's nice, nice straw, And you put it in there, and oh, everyone's winning. And everybody, of course, when in the paintings or the pictures, everybody's smiling. It's all, all very, very nice and, and winsome. But when you actually look at what is being said there, it, it isn't that nice at all. I mean, hang on a minute, just consider what is taking place. Why was there no room for her in the inn? There used to be a joke in the UK that said, oh, because there was never any room for her in the inn, because it's Christmas. You know, you think, no, that's just embarrassing. But the whole point was, as the census was coming together, and they were bringing people together, of course the town would be very busy. But that's not why there wasn't any room for her in the inn. See, imagine the scene. David has got family there. He's got family heritage there. But the girl he's just walked in with, his 13-year-old fiancé, happens to be incredibly pregnant. Do you know what family does in this culture when that young girl who is engaged gets pregnant? When When they see young Joseph coming, they shut the doors. I don't want anything to do with you. What the heck is this? You're not married to this girl. We have no place for you in our home. They were shunned at the doors. They were shut out of Bethlehem. Even the hotels didn't have room for them because it was so embarrassing and so abhorrent what had taken place with this girl getting pregnant. And who's going to believe that oh, it wasn't me? She's a virgin. Here, yeah, right, pull the other one, pal. These are real people, okay? Real life. We wrap them up in some type of nativity magic, but they're just people like us. They see them coming. You're 13. You're, you should have never had sex with her. Don't give me the fact that she's a virgin. Please leave. They are shut out. And so they find the squalor of a borrowed stable. That's all they get given in desperation. And right there in the squalor of a borrowed stable, she doesn't give birth in a nice warm home with family around her. She gives birth into the dirt and the mank of an outhouse of an inn. As Jesus is born, he's not born and then stroking head and let's take a picture and let's put him in a nice little warm incubator and keep him warm. And, oh, he's got a bit of jaundice. Let's put photos on him. There's none of that taking place. She is there scooping out with her hands the muck and the rank in the cattle trough. That's all they got. So they're pulling the mank away and pulling the, all the rubbish from the different cattle troughs. And then all she's got is some swaddling clothes, puts a bit of hay down, and then puts him in what is effectively a feeding trough. The scene is remarkable, isn't it? You're 13 years old. You've just walked 120 kilometers you and your fiance have been shunned by all family members. You've just given birth in a borrowed stable. The one who said he was going to be the Messiah, according to the angel Gabriel, and you wrap him in cloth and you put him in a feeding trough. Isn't it incredible? It's a staggering scene that is taking place. The shock of this scene is momentous. Jesus Christ the maker of heaven and earth, the one that spins galaxies, the one who creates the stars, the one who breathed forth the sun, the one who sustains all things, now in swaddling clothes and in a feeding trough. You know, what must have been going through the minds of Mary and Joseph? They're just like us. What would have been going through your mind? What would have been going through Joseph's mind? He probably would have been thinking to himself, you know what? I thought I saw an angel in my dream telling me that my wife hadn't had sex with anybody and that she really was a virgin, but maybe I was wrong. I've lost everything. Even my family won't have anything to do with me now. Imagine for Mary. She's been told by the angel Gabriel at 13 years old, that she is to be blessed above all women. She has been told that she will give birth to the Christ, the Son of the Most High. But would you still be believing that as you've gone through all this? The journey, the heat, the sweat, the shunning at the doors, the lying of this small baby into a feeding trough? I think what was probably going through her mind is, is this really real? Is, is this really God? And if this is God, then why all this? Why would it be so horrendous now? Why would this be the most horrendous and difficult pregnancy period? Why would he arrange for it to be a census? What is up with this? Mary was probably very troubled. And I think the way this is written would indicate that, yeah, she was troubled. And she was beginning to wonder if all this was completely real. The scene itself must have been very perplexing for Mary and Joseph. And let looking back at it now, through Dr. Luke's eyes in Luke chapter two, we have the distinct privilege of realizing this was no accident. But behind all of this was the loving hand of God. You see, this census that just seemed to randomly take place because of Caesar. We have to remember that Caesar is God's Caesar. God is the ruler of the nations, He is the one that sits above all kings. And so isn't it ironic that Caesar would therefore call a census that would take his boy Joseph to Bethlehem? Oh, that's very ironic. Because in Micah 5 verse 2, prophetically speaking, we learn that Bethlehem would be the place for the special king to be born. In Micah 5 verse 2, it talks about one will be born in Bethlehem, the one whose origin is from old, from Ancient of Days. That whole premise of Ancient of Days was referring to God, the Alpha and Omega, the one who has no end, no beginning. He has been there from all times. When the very foundation of the world was been put in, the Ancient of Days was there. That's been prophesied several hundred years before Mary and Joseph ever rock up into this world. And yet God, in His grace and splendor and sovereignty, arranges a census so that His special King The Son of the Most High, as prophesied in Micah five verse two, would indeed be born in Bethlehem. Isn't it incredible? Likewise being born into the squalor of a borrowed stable, it can appear horrible, and you think, what is up with that? Surely a king would come into a palace, surely a king would come into a queen, surely a king would some come into some glorious castle. Not this king. Because this king hasn't come from the righteous. He's come from the sinful. He's come for the lowest of the low. So for this king to be born into the squalor of a barred stable, for this king to be born and held and put then in a cattle trough, it was completely God's plan. Because it was symbolic all the time that this is what he's come for. The ground up. He's come for all who would put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. This must have been perplexing for Mary. Mary. It must have been perplexing for Joseph as they sit there. But as we look back, we realize that all these things have been crafted by the loving hand of God. Uh, Folks, the truth is it's the same for us too. Behind your lives, even in the challenges and the difficulties, without question, according to this book, lies the loving hand of God. As we said in the worship, behind a frowning providence, as William Cowper said, hides a smiling face. It's the reality of our lives. And so often I've been through things in my life where I think, what is up with this? You know, your son, who our firstborn son, Joshua, and then he's born and we realize at the age of three he can't speak. And they start doing numerous tests on him, thinking he may have autism. They don't know if he's ever going to speak. They don't know whether it's mechanical or in his head. They have no idea. And they discover he's got a cleft palate, so he starts to go through operations in that. And when he has his first operation, they realize he's got two holes in his heart. And you think, Lord, what what is this? I'm a pastor, I'm trying to serve your people, and I I can't do this. Not my son, please not my son. Start of this year, we think we're coming to Australia in January. The Lord had different plans. He had June in mind the start of this year, when I was all excited about coming, I have basically done myself out of a job in Christchurch. Other men had been trained. Other men had been put in in the sending church that I was coming from. And I was all excited to get the visa through and then move here. But then we hear from our lawyer, you ain't getting no visa. They're going to decline it. Oh my gosh. Lord, what is this? What is this? I, Lord, I'm going to move my family 10,500 miles for you Lord I'm going to throw everything in I'm going to leave my family I'm going to leave the church that I've been at for 17 years Lord I love these people it wasn't my plan to go it was your plan but Lord what the heck is this it looks like I'm not going anyway what are you doing you ever been through those moments where you sit and you look at your circumstances and you just think what is up with this that's what Mary was doing Folks, we need to learn that behind a frowning providence lies a smiling face. There are things that happen in our lives that don't make sense to our minds. They wouldn't be exactly how we would arrange it. But if God had a better plan for you, he surely would have done that. Because he's in control of your life. He oversees you both behind and before. That's why we're able to say with the psalmist, surely lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That is why we're able to say that whatever our lot thou has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Because you look around and sometimes the circumstances don't make sense. Because they're providence. But as you look up, even though you don't understand it, if you notice, you will always see a smiling face. So take courage. If you're walking through things, as Kathy was bringing out today, and as Bianca was bringing out today in the worship, if you're walking through things... I don't think that God's not interested, because behind that providence is His smiling face. That's what Mary was going to go on to discover, because you see, God was on the move with this young girl. He knew of her trouble. He knew of her heart, and so God was going to do something awesome to shore her up. God was going to do something incredible, not only for us, but it was going to have specific effect for young Mary, and that's where we go now to the proclamation. You see, while all this is taking place in the stable, while all this is unfolding in the squalor of a borrowed stable, outside of this stable, in the fields of Bethlehem, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, in complete darkness, God is about to completely step in and blow the world apart. I mean, imagine the scene in verses 8 and 9. Let's read it together. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Imagine the scene. You are out in the middle of nowhere. And in Australia, you really can do this. In Britain, you're often in trouble because there's so much light pollution. But right here, you can go out into the middle of nowhere, and you will notice it is deathly black, right? There is really no light at all. You can't see anything at all. That's what these shepherds are used to. They are sitting in a field outside of Bethlehem. These huge, massive guys. We often think of little King David as the shepherd. That's true, but he was a shepherd boy. Most shepherds were huge, burly men. They were the bare grills of the day. Okay, These guys rocked. These guys could, could fight their way out of a paper bag using a little finger. They were just huge. They were vast. They were big, burly men. They were the Nick and Richards of Sovereign Grace Church. These guys rocked. They were huge. And they didn't get scared easy. Right here, they do. They get incredibly scared because entering into this scene of complete darkness is an angel. And what a scene it is. The angel rocks up and they basically wet themselves. That's basically what it says. And they just, in the state of wetting themselves, the angel looks them in the eye and says, Fear not, verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. She turns up, this angel turns up and explains to them, okay, I know I've just blown your world away, and we're not thinking here, angel, the little angel on the top of the tree, okay? If, if I could strap your eyelids up and shine a strobe light into it many, many times, that's probably more akin to what these guys experienced. It would be huge. It would blow your world to the point where these guys are running around scared stiff. The angel says, stop it. Fear not. Well, okay. Why should I not fear? Why should I not just run for the hills right now? This is why fear not. Because I bring you great news. Great news of a joy that will be for all people. The reason why these shepherds do not need to fear is because this angel is about to give them some great news. Some great news that would bring them joy. She is going to turn this fear to joy. But don't miss your faces here. Your faces. Because this angel is going to bring news of a great joy that will be not only for them, but for all people. In many ways, we are on the hillside with them in this moment. In many ways, we are all in this field getting on with our shepherdry and lives as well. And the angel appears and has something to communicate. And when we hear the words, all people, our ears should prick up. Because it's talking about you. It's talking about Patrick. It's talking about Sarah. It's talking about Eric. It's talking about Chris. Listen. I bring good news of great joy to all people. Well, what is it? What are you going to tell us? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. That is the most incredible news that you are ever going to read in any book, anywhere in the world, anytime. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. In Genesis chapter 3, we learn how incredible this moment is going to be. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we see the promise of a Saviour to come. You see, God Having had Adam and Eve screw up, having had Adam and Eve reject God as really their Lord and Savior, reject following God as their Father, they've instead eaten the fruit and rejected God. God then then basically curses them. He says something to Adam, he says something to Eve, and then to the serpent. He makes it very clear, different things about the way he's going to live. But then he finishes saying this, which I just love. He says, listen serpent, devil, one day one will come. And you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Oh, I like that. He's going to come. And you, Satan, you will bruise his heel, but make no mistake, he's going to crush your head. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the hunt is on over the serpent crusher. Who's it going to be? Who is this savior, this king to come? What is he going to be like? And when is he going to come? And what's going to take place? Well, Adam and Eve have a baby. What do they call him? Can you remember? Cain. So they call him Cain. And do you know what Cain means in the Hebrew? Here he is. And they, they pop a baby out and Eve says, oh, fantastic. Here he is. The serpent crusher has arrived. Thank goodness for that. We can all go back into the garden. Well, how wrong she was. Cain went on to be a killer. He didn't end up to being a saviour. He wrecked his life and got the family further and further away from the garden. So it's not Cain. Is it Abel? No, he's not the serpent crusher. Is it Abraham? Maybe Abraham is the saviour to come. No. Is it Isaac? No. But what we do find in Genesis 22 is although it's not Abraham and Isaac, we do see a shadow form that this saviour to come, this serpent crusher, is in some way going to be a lamb. You see, as Abraham lifts the dagger above his boy Isaac, about to slay him as God has commanded him, the Angel of the Lord says, "Stop!" And he unties his boy, and there is a ram caught in the thicket that will be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Abraham is then said to have seen the day of the, the day of the Lord to come, and rejoiced. We haven't met the serpent crusher yet, but we know he's going to be a lamb. And we know that in some way this lamb is going to be a substitute for the nation, substitute for all those who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior. A truth that is then echoed in Exodus through the Passover lamb. As families, obedient to God, kill a spotless, innocent lamb. Not a broken bone in its body. They kill it and they put the blood of the lamb around the doorposts. When the angel of death comes around, all the firstborn son of the whole land are killed. Apart from the families with the blood around the doorposts. The blood of a lamb. All pointing to one to come. A saviour. The great serpent crusher to come. In Genesis 49 we then discover that this lamb is not only a lamb, but he's going to be a lion. A lion from the tribe of Judah. It's a wonderful scene. The whole book of Genesis right at the end. You think it's all about Joseph, but it's not. It's all about Judah. Because it's through Judah that the serpent crusher is going to come. And God has incredibly used Joseph to save a nation, but in saving a nation, he's particularly saved Judah. Because his son. The Son of the Most High is going to come through the line of the tribe of Judah. And so as Jesse, right at the end of Genesis, sits with all of his boys, he prays and prophesies over each one of them. And when he gets to Judah, he says this. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Listen. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. This serpent crusher is not only going to be a lamb, he's going to be a king. He's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, coming through the bloodline of Judah. Was it David? No. Was it Solomon? No. But he would nonetheless come through that great line. Over 500 years, 300 prophecies, 300 incredible prophecies come about the serpent crusher to come. They are all screaming of the way he would be born, the way he would live his life, what he would do in his life, the type of king he would be, all that would take place in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Then for 400 years, right at the end, nothing happens. It just goes quiet. Until a group of shepherds sit just outside Bethlehem in the pitch black, probably having a drink, having a chat, the guys just like us, and then boom, the angel of the Lord appears and communicates to them, behold, don't fear, but get excited, pack your bags, because the saviour of the world has just been born into the city of David, the Messiah, the son of the most high has indeed come. My friends, hope Has come. Isn't it incredible? It goes quiet for all those years. You're wondering, Genesis chapter 3, who's the serpent crusher going to be? All the way through the Old Testament. You're waiting and waiting and waiting, and then bang, he comes. He's born in Bethlehem. Go find him. His mom and dad's name are Mary and Joseph. His name's Jesus. And you'll find him because he'll be in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. What a scene. You see, this is fundamentally what makes Christianity so incredibly different to other religions. Because in Christianity, we have a Savior. You see, we don't need a teacher. We don't need a prophet. According to this Bible, we need a Savior. According to my life, a life that has been sinful against God, a life that has rejected God. When I read this Bible, I don't need somebody to teach me how to do better I don't need a prophet to tell me what I can do better as time goes on. I need a saviour because I'm stuffed. I am cut off from God in my sin. I cannot get back to him with a teacher. I cannot get back with a prophet. Buddha can't get me back to God. He might try, but he can't. He's not going to cut it for me. He can't sort out my problem with my sin. Muhammad isn't going to cut it. He might point me in different ways. Well, that's jolly nice. But i got a deeper problem than that, mate. I'm cut off from the hostility. The wall of hostility between me and God is insurmountable. Thanks for pointing, but I'm still completely stuffed. Confucius can't sort out my problem with sin. But Jesus Christ can. The Savior of the world has come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born this day. For behold, the angel says, for unto you this day is born a Savior. I need a savior. You need a savior. You do not need a teacher. You do not need a prophet. You do not need to worship some ancestors. You do not need to rock up to Mary and ask her for a favour. It is pointless. You need a savior. Good news. His name is Jesus. Two thousand years ago, he came after you. I love then the response, which is part three. The response is what you then see from verses 13 through to the end of verse 20. The response is to this glorious announcement that the Savior has indeed come. In verses 13 and 14, heaven responds. I mean, check this out. If you weren't nervous before for the shepherds, at this point they were running and screaming like girls. And lo and behold, there's no fear not. It just says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Can you imagine that? Can you only imagine? Pitch black, an angel appears. Okay, I am very, very scared. Okay, they've told me not to fear, so I'm I'm coming back a little bit. But then, upon that announcement... The heaven rips apart. There are multitudes of angels now singing in the skies. I'm going to be on my back hiding like a small female. This is just to be a horrendous and horrific and terrifying scene. As the heavens open up and they start singing, hark, the herald angel sings and they declare in a loud song, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, nowhere in the Old Testament do you come across "glory to God in the highest." There's many different things mentioned in the Old Testament in the way they are worshiping God, but not "glory to God in the highest." And what they don't mean in that moment is, "Okay, glory to God in the highest because He's really high." What they're basically saying is, "God, we have seen you do some incredible things. You are worthy of all praise, but this is incredible." So heavens cannot contain these angelic hosts. The heavens rip apart, and they are clambering in to shout to the Lord, glory to God in the highest. Out of everything we've seen so far, out of everything that we can declare that you are worthy of, this is amazing. Because you, Lord, have been born into that stable. I can see it with my eyes. And through your birth, I know that you have come on a rescue mission to save mankind. You have incarnated yourself so that by the grace of God there can be peace and goodwill with all men. So brother, by, by the grace of God there can be peace with God through your life. So glory to God in the highest. Don't you love it? A multitude of angels singing and declaring their worth. Well, they go as fast as they came. And the shepherds then, in verse 15 to 18, respond in their own. They regroup. And in verses 15 to 18... What we see is that the shepherds are basically rubbing their eyes and saying, was it just me? Or did an angel just... A bit, I mean, they must have just thought, what, what the heck? Was there something in those beans? I mean, how did this work? They're just regular guys. They must have just been in a disbelief over, did you just see what I think I saw? They all agreed they had indeed seen it. So it says they make haste to Bethlehem. They're going to go find him. If this saviour has come, I'm jolly, well going to hunt him out, and I'm going to find him. She said, what did, what did the angel say? Okay, Mary and Joseph, baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Let's go. So they go in haste to Bethlehem and hunt for Jesus. They find him. Incredibly, they find the baby Jesus exactly how they said it was. And so they begin to communicate to Mary and Joseph all that had taken place. at well, verse 18, it appears that many were sceptical. And that's the way it's written. Verse 18, it says, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. It sounds lovely, doesn't it? Oh, well, how, how interesting. I'll wonder about that. No, what Luke's saying is they didn't really believe him. They're listening, but yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Shepherd. Um, we'll let you know. They're wondering about what they're saying. It's written in that type of dynamic. And it's written in that type of dynamic because it is contrasted with the next verse. Because Mary responds in verse 19. And she's not wondering. Verse 19 is Mary's response. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I love that. You're 13 years old. An angel appears to you and says, You're going to give birth to the Son of the Most High. Are you sure? Before you know it, then, you're on the back of a donkey doing a 120 kilometer trek to Bethlehem. Are you sure? You then are shunned by all of the family and relatives, and all you can get is the spot of a squalid, borrowed stable where you give birth at 13, you wrap this god in swaddling clothes and put him in a cattle trough. Lord, are you sure? Is this really you? After all the emotions, all the troubles, all the difficulties that they worked through, how kind of the Lord then to have angels appear to shepherds that come to Mary and say, Mary, this is what's just happened. They said that the Savior has been born. He's been born to you. Everybody else is skeptical, but not Mary. It gives a surety, it gives a certainty, it speaks truth to her heart, and she knows for sure then, He's the one. I'm the mother of the one. And she cares for her son then throughout all of his 33 years, knowing and realizing He really is the Savior. You know, it can be confusing then and wondering, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? I mean, we're not the mum and dad of Jesus, so okay, we can't really do that. We're not the, uh, you know, the angels, so we can't really just burst into heaven and, and do that. How, where are we in this, Lord? Hey, what do I do with this? Well, we're in verse 20. Our response is the shepherd's response, the regular guys, the regular Joes. And this was their response. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. How do we apply this message? We apply this message to grateful, glorifying praise to God. See, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are called by God to bow the knee and worship Him as your Lord and Savior. I didn't do that either. I rejected God and really lived for myself. But ultimately, my friends, we need to understand that God made us. And in making us, He made us to find our identity and joy and peace and security in Him. But we rejected Him. Which means that we're by nature objects of wrath. But 2,000 years ago, in grace, God, put on flesh, was born into a borrowed stable to come after you. To make a way for you to know life, to make a way for you to be reconciled to God, to be brought back to the God who made you and sustains you and wants to have a relationship with you. John 3.16 simply says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. My friends, I urge you, this Christmas time, the way you respond to the coming of the Messiah is you bow your knee and you say, Lord, I pray. I believe you're the king. I believe you're the Lord. I believe you really are the one that made me and sustains me. And so, Lord, I take you as my king. And, Lord, I take you as my savior. I believe you died in my place. And three days later, you rose again. My friends, when you do both of those things, hello, salvation. That's what he came for. A savior comes to save. How did he do that? By being born, by dying, and by raising again. How do I respond? By believing. By believing in him as your Lord and Savior. And when you do that, life and life in abundance will be yours. But how do you respond if you already have that? If you already know that Jesus really is the King, that he really is the Savior? You respond like the shepherds. Having heard and seen all these things and having been told them, we glorify and praise God. Psalm 98 says it best. And if the musicians could come back up, that'd be great. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Here's the application. So make joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. My friends, in our lives and in our deeds and in our songs, the way we apply the coming of Jesus Christ is through praise. We live lives that say, you are my king and you are my savior. We live lives that suggest that we really do believe that he came. And he came and was born and then died and rose again for us. And in the midst of living it all, we do what we commanded to do. We sing his praises. Two thousand years ago, hark, the herald angels sang. Shepherds went on to sing and be amazed at all what the Lord had done. 2,000 years on, that's what we do too. We sing of his praises. And so would that be the story of our lives? Let's stand together.